This is Hashtag Authentic, a podcast for creatives, dreamers and entrepreneurs online. I'm your host, Sarah Tasker, a certified coach specializing in creative business and all things related to social media and the digital realm. This is episode number 101. beautiful friends how are you all doing I have turned off my fridge to stop it from humming and I am back here with you don't let me forget to turn it back on or everything will melt it is a cold September day as I record this with you and it's a bit of a change we've been hanging on to summer these last few weeks and I've really loved it but suddenly overnight it's just gone really cold we are definitely into the knitwear and open fire kind of weather now and also that weather where all of the giant spiders start to come into your house. So that's really fun. (laughs) It's been um, a funny kind of summer for me. I don't know about you guys. I've had some really big successes. I've had the most incredible rebrand with Stories Studio. Give them a shout out for their incredible work. If you've not seen it yet, I really think you have to. You have to go to my website, which is meandorla.co.uk, and you will see just the most beautiful website. I am biased, but I think it's the most beautiful website on the internet. I am so thrilled with it. It feels like a new grown-up version of who I've been so far um, or who my business has been maybe. I've also been taking some training. I've trained in acceptance and commitment therapy and some work in internal family systems, all for my one-to-one client work, which if you're on the waiting list, I'm sending out some new availability in the next few weeks. So watch this space. Um, And I've also been popping over to France quite a lot. I'm working on a new big dream. You might have heard me kind of drop a few hints about this already, but I have this dream of a slightly crumbling French farmhouse in the middle of nowhere. And I've decided it's time to make it happen. So we've been over, we've been viewing properties, we've been trying to sort out mortgages. It's happening. I might have to fight kicking and screaming because Brexit has created some new levels of bureaucracy. But... I'm all about making the big dreams come true. So that has been pretty all-consuming in the last few months. But I've also been in, and I think this is longer than the summer really, this kind of speaks for the whole year for me in this sort of hibernation time. It's been me craving more intimate time, but just with a handful of really close friends. And for the first time I think ever, really wanting to take some time away from social media, wanting to not be so publicly visible for a while, wanting to kind of live my life quietly and in the privacy of my own home, which has been interesting to experience because it's new for me. It's certainly something I hear from so many of you that it's something you really crave. So it's been really helpful to kind of be in that headspace and understand a little bit more about what you need when you're in that place and how you can sometimes balance that with the need to be visible to an extent in order to keep your business operational. And in this time, while I've been slightly hibernating, I kept getting recommendations. Do you ever have this happen? Like different people from all different corners of your life keep suggesting the same thing to you and eventually you think I better pay attention and actually listen to what they're telling me. And people kept recommending this book to me. It was like, friends, podcast guests, other mums when I was picking all her up. So eventually I was like, I'm going to buy the book. And I also downloaded the audio book because I'm that kind of person. And then I was like, 
oh, hang on. I know this person. This is Catherine from the Insta Retreat. I know Catherine. So, of course, I immediately had to go and email her. And when I did, I found that she had already emailed me somewhere buried in the depths of my crazy inbox was the most beautiful email she'd written me with feedback about her experience in that class. So um, with her permission, I'm just going to read out what she wrote. She said, I signed up in January thinking, oh, my God, I can't afford this. What a stupid indulgence. And then I barely started the course before I had to pause while my book launched. I've published six books before to absolute silence, but this one was immediately different. I think wintering landed at a time when everyone needed to hear its message of learning to survive when life shuts you down. And there I was posting snaps of my daily walk or wherever with captions like lovely walk today. And I suddenly realized how inadequate that was. Anyway, I went back and devoured the course and it's changed way more than my Instagram feed. It's made me realize how much my audience has been waiting for me to reach out and really talk to them. I revamped my newsletter and got loads of new followers and launched a podcast inviting guests to talk about their wintering experiences. I'm now putting better quality material out there and I've stopped being ashamed to own my status as an author. It also really made me reflect on my attitude to money and how embarrassed I am about the feeble living I make. Because I'm autistic and I have some chronic illnesses, I've had to step away from every proper job I have and I drag a whole tangle of shame behind me for that. Writing literary memoir doesn't pay the bills, but your course made me see that I can earn a living around that and it all increases my chance of selling more books. I've now launched my first online courses and I've been stunned by how many people wanted to sign up. At the same time, my book is long listed for the Wainwright Prize. I've suddenly seen that it doesn't have to be a trade-off. I can be entrepreneurial and still write great quality books. One doesn't have to weigh against the other for as long as I do it my way and talk to my people. Sorry, that was long-winded, but I wanted to show you that it's made so much more difference to me than just making my Instagram look prettier. Thank you so much. I mean, I love that whole email because it is just the most compelling story of somebody learning that the answer is to be more ourselves and as I've kind of rewritten the copy for my website this has been a theme that I have returned to again and again because I kind of think it's the theme almost like the underlying mission that fuels all of my work. I feel like when we're born and everything that happens after that is all designed to teach us to be less ourselves. We're taught to fit in, we're taught to blend, we're taught to please people, we're taught to be like everybody else. And then you hit a point maybe in your 20s or your 30s or your 40s or later where suddenly you realise you've spent your whole life trying to please everybody else, trying to fit into a mould that somebody else designed and it just doesn't work for you anymore. So hearing how Catherine letting herself embrace exactly who she was and stopping trying to kind of filter herself and limit herself and just show up as all of the different facets of herself and how that has opened up so many doors and windows and opportunities for her. It kind of gives me goosebumps because it's the same journey that I had to go on that I see so many other people having to go on. And that is especially true in the Insta retreat because it is more more than Instagram. Um, It's a class about Instagram, but that lesson of you are everything you need. All the answers you're seeking for are within you. Takes time and support to really embed, I think. Anyway, I replied to Catherine's email and I asked if she would come here on the podcast to talk with us. 
And we have this wonderful conversation about wintering and about the importance of those times of rest, even if we don't necessarily welcome them. And about how to balance creative work with the demands of an online business, about using Instagram as a tool for real human connection, and also about being neurodiverse and how it intersects with all of those things. The conversation we had was probably one of the most nourishing and uplifting ones I've had for quite some time. There's one quote she says in particular, one just just line she just dropped so easily that has echoed in my head ever since. So I really hope that this gives you the same sense of a verbal hug that it really did for me. And if you would like to join me and Catherine and a ton of other like-minded, creative, wholehearted, daydreaming souls, the Insta Retreat class that she mentions in that testimonial is on sale right now. It is six weeks of very carefully structured strategy and creativity and teaching, but you will also get weekly application calls with me where we work through everything we're learning. And every Friday, we're doing a coaching call to tackle all of those mindset issues with myself and Sally Hardy, who is a dear friend and a super talented life coach. We've also got two bonus guests this time. We have Ida who you might remember from episode number 96. She's going to come and talk to us about how she's used TikTok and Reels to completely transform her life and launch her own online business. And Helen and Katie from the Good Ship Illustration to come and talk about using Instagram Live to build a super engaged customer base and how they have built a business off the back of that too. There is so much more included. I actually can't even fit it all in here. But as always, there are payment plans available to help spread the cost over one, two or three months. And we would so love to have you join us in that. If you'd like to hear more, you can head over to me and allair.co.uk and you can click on the Insta Retreat to see all the details. It would be just so wonderful to have some of you in there with me. Now, enough chatter from me. Let me introduce you to the incredible Catherine. Hi, Catherine. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, thank you for having me. It's so lovely to talk to you in real life. As usual, I feel like we are best friends who've been hanging out for ages, even though this is our first time talking. I know, that's the weird world we live in, isn't it? And and sometimes you kind of think, oh, I actually don't know this person. Like, yeah. <laughs> I'm about to embarrass myself by acting like I know them and I don't. <laughs> but I feel like we do. I don't know. I'm convinced that the connections we make online, however filtered and however kind of obscured by the screen in between there's still the human connection happens because I do feel like I know you and now we've we don't have to do the awkward getting to know each other bit oh I mean thank god for that I <laughs> never want to have to do that with another person again really <laughs> <laughs> Catherine could you give us everyone's favorite thing to do um the introduction to yourself and what you do oh I am a writer um, I'm the author of Wintering um, and also of Electricity of Every Living Thing, which is my memoir about learning I'm autistic when I was like 39. Um, that's an important thing to know about me because everything I do is informed by that. Uh, I am also, I've always been a teacher um, and I still love teaching and mentoring people um, around their writing quite often. Uh, and yeah, I live in Whitstable. I'm a sea lover. I love swimming and I just love being by the sea. I have two cats, one of which is mainly absent and a dog and a son and a husband. Is that a good introduction? That's I don't perfect. Know. <laughs> That's everything. Except are you one of those people that swims in the depths of winter in the sea? 
I swim all through winter. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. Although I've struggled with it this year, I have to say, because I've I have Meniere's disease, which means I'm dizzy quite often, and it's been a bastard this mm. year. So. Yeah, you don't want to get dizzy out to sea. (laughs) No, and sometimes it triggers it off because like my brain loses its sense of equilibrium. So I have found winter swimming a lot harder this year because I haven't been able to stay acclimatised. But I've I've still been getting in, yeah. Amazing. I always envy those people, (laughs) but also don't really want to do it. (laughs) So... There's so many places we can go with this conversation. I feel kind of greedy for your time. I, w- I want to keep you. Let's start by talking about wintering, because I mm. think if people have already come across some of your work, am I right in thinking that maybe wintering has been the one that seems to have kind of spread into the most different areas? Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, by by far. I mean, I've always been like an obscure little writer um, <laughs> up until this year. And wintering did okay in the UK. It's done fine. Um, but in the US, it landed in the um, New York Times bestseller list for five weeks. So Congratulations. that has been a pretty transformative experience, <laughs> really. I'm very deserved. Oh, do you know what? Actually, yeah, I, I've got no shame in feeling that too. Yeah. I mean, I've been slogging away at this since I was like 24 um, and I've had a few near misses, you know, books that looked like they were going to do well and then did, you know, fine, but not not anything that was going to pay my bills. Um, and I, do you know what, if this had come at any other point in my life, I don't think I'd have been ready for it and it would have freaked me out. Mm. Um, but I, I feel okay about it. Yeah, I feel I'm not tipped over by it, which is unusual for me. <laughs> That's so interesting, isn't it? Like the synchronicity of things happening when they're kind of supposed to. It sometimes seems. Yeah, you have to be ready for things. I mean, I, I often like watch younger writers, you know, I mentor a lot of younger writers and particularly neurodivergent ones, you know, because I can, I can relate to how they're going to approach all of this. And I watch them in their kind of hopes and dreams. And I kind of think you don't actually want what you think mm-hmm. you want. No, mm-hmm. like you don't want it all at once. I, I mean, I in lots of ways, I feel like I've had the privilege of learning my craft slowly and not having to cope with everything all at once because I would not have managed it. I mean, I know that's not true for everyone, but it's definitely true for me. And although that means I've been skint most of my adult life, <laughs> <laughs> um, it also means that I haven't. I mean, I, I remember someone a couple of years ago saying, someone in the publishing industry saying, I want you to make a better living out of this. I want you to have to stop hustling and stop giving up all the other stuff you do. And I said at that time, and that was only about three years ago, like if I suddenly made a load of money, I would become a bag lady, like pushing all my possessions <laughs> around in a shopping trolley and muttering to myself. Disconnecting from society. Yeah, I wasn't even joking. You know? <laughs> um, I, you know, and so actually having success at this point in my life is kind of the right time I can cope with it. I think that makes sense. And I wonder sometimes when we are hungry to have everything all at once, when we're young Mm -hmm. and we want to have everything, sometimes I think what we really want is to just know that it's going to happen eventually. We want like the fear that it's never going to happen to be gone more than we want to Mm -hmm. have the success, if that makes sense. Yeah, and we want to know that what we're doing is okay. Like that's such a big thing for creatives isn't it that it's hard to know whether what you're doing is like landing at all and you have to have so much faith in yourself and that's massively challenging 
And, you know, I think it's different for loads of people. But for me, that sense of financial safety has been a real thing on my mind all through my life because I don't have rich parents. I'm, you know, I'm not ever going to inherit like the Mm -hmm. wealth that's going to make everything okay. And no one's ever been funding me. And so I've had to always make sure that I'm paying my own way through life, which means that I haven't been able to take risks in in the way that I've seen other people do. And like, that's my life. That's my setup. I'm, I'm okay with that in lots of ways. How much then has wintering changed that for you, your kind of financial relationship? I'm not asking you to give us too many details. <laughs> um, do you know what? It hasn't really yet. And what's really funny about that is that, uh, I mean, like publishing, like money that you make on your books takes a long time to come yeah. through. Um, so actually, no, that that has not happened. Um, but what did happen over the course of lockdown was that I suddenly finally, finally realized that I needed to make my own sense of safety from that and set up my courses business. Mm. And, um, and that has, that has made it okay. Actually, it's that it's something that I did rather than something that came to me at this random point. And so, yeah, that for now means that I feel okay for the first time in like, forever, I think. Well, and there's, there's something about Obviously, I teach courses too. In fact, we met in the Insta Retreat. And having that kind of like you're steering the ship, very different to publishing where you're kind of part of this huge piece of machinery that moves very slowly and quite Mm. clunkily at times. Like, yeah, you can write a course and have it up and for sale like the next week if need be like you can you can sell it as hard or as soft as you want if one thing doesn't work you can find new strategies and so you have that kind of I don't know if it's like a nimbleness or like a reactivity financially Mm -hmm. that is hard to find in many other jobs especially for creatives yeah, totally. And and like, I mean, having having been on the outskirts of publishing for a long time, because I've also worked as like a scout and an editor, I really am more conscious than most people about how tenuous publishing careers are mm-hmm. and how they're, you know, it spits so many people out in so many painful ways. And I didn't want to be vulnerable to that. Like I've never, ever wanted my financial security to rely on my book income because it's not in your control if you're not self-publishing like self-publishing people are different and they are totally admirable human beings with (laughs) more skills than I have but for those of us that are like in mainstream publishing we have so little control and quite often like the promises that are made by publishing teams don't come to fruition in the way that you think they're going to and having your own strand that you're in charge of just gets rid of that massive gap between your conversations with your audience and how your work goes out there and is presented. And that's that's actually really important to me. So yeah, you really successfully built this online audience for yourself. And I know, I think you sent me an email a little while ago talking about how kind of pivoting your content and pivoting the way you thought about that had changed how you felt about your online audience. Am I remembering that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, basically, like I, you know, this time a year ago, a little bit over a year ago, um, I my approach to Instagram, I really liked being on Instagram, but I felt like I didn't get it, which is why I'd signed up to your course. 
Um, and like my, you know, I'd post a picture of a pretty thing that I liked and put a couple of words underneath it, like, oh, a bowl of cherries, you know, and that would be, that would be the extent of my, <laughs> of my yeah. captioning. Um, and I, I wanted to do it better, but I couldn't figure it out really. Um, and in lots of ways, I still feel like I don't understand it in the way that other people understand it in that. I don't ever feel like writing long responses to other people's posts or, or um, you know, I don't follow any hashtags. And whenever I do, I get annoyed by them really quickly. I'm quite a grumpy <laughs> soul, really. Um, but what I, you know, what I learned to do from you was to think about like the storytelling of the pictures that I was putting on there and also to actually say something in my captions um, which I know shouldn't come as a revelation to a writer, but uh, it, it did. <laughs> I think sometimes it's the revelation that like people yes, care. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you've got permission to yeah, do that. You kind right? of, it's that taking up space thing a little bit, isn't it? You're always thinking, do people really want me to rattle on like this, like seriously? Um, and they do. That's weird. And <laughs> <laughs> it's not weird it's not and it and this is fascinating because like your non-fiction books are yeah, autobiographical yeah, yeah. <laughs> so on that scale like your brain was like this is fine we're allowed to tell yeah. this story and take up this space and yet on the kind of macro scale on those tiny daily instances of, of just yeah. life it felt it wasn't what well, wasn't important enough, maybe, or interesting yeah, enough. Interesting enough. And I don't know. I mean, I kind of felt like it was this medium for posting pictures and therefore I shouldn't be talking. And I I hadn't really realized how much like I think blogging has shifted onto Instagram really. If it's not shifted yeah. into podcasts. Because you know, my first success was as a blogger years and years ago. Um, and that I mean, I don't read any blogs anymore and I don't think many people do, but what I do listen to a no. podcast, that's where I hear my discussion. Um, and I just hadn't got that people were doing that on Instagram too. And so, yeah, it took me, it was a really big shift for me, but it, it's made a huge difference. And also I learned to talk to camera, which I didn't ever think was something I'd do. But again, people love it when you actually talk to them. That was a surprise to me. And it, you know, it's kind of fun. It becomes a lot more interactive. Right. And and if you think about why we follow anyone on Instagram, but especially an author, so maybe you read a book and you feel connected to their story, so you go and look them up on Instagram, you're looking for more of that person and maybe bits of that person that you didn't get in the book and some yeah. that you did. You're not looking for like just covers, no. <laughs> book covers. That, no. and... and pictures of people sort of standing, smiling in a really like, you know, ugly setting. Like, you know, like when you see, oh, you know, I was at this signing <laughs> yeah. today and here I am. And it's like, oh, I don't really want to see that. It's kind of. Yes, me and the manager yeah, of Waterstones. Yeah, stop it. <laughs> yeah, well, it's not, that's not interesting. Like we're nosy. We, I would much rather see like the bowl of cherries you had for breakfast and hear what you thought about that. And so I, I think that that's like a fundamental thing that we sometimes forget about Instagram. So people will do it with products. Like it's just a catalog. You go on their page and it's just yeah. a catalog. And it's that question of what, what can you give people that, that they can't get anywhere else from you? And that's what Instagram it's is contact, so good for. Isn't it? That's what we're seeking over and over again in all this stuff is like a sense of contact. Um, 
And yeah, I mean, I, but you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna wind back the clock a bit because I think my whole response to all of this is because I had my not my fingers burnt really early, but I set up a really anxious pattern of behaviour around social media very very early on. So like you know, 2009, um, when I'd I'd already published like a book of short stories and a novel with small presses. And I started this anonymous blog called 52 Seductions, which was about like the possibility of a sex life after 10 years of marriage. And it was really, it got incredibly popular very quickly um, mm. and totally took me by surprise. So by the time an, an agent first approached me, I think I was three posts into the blog and I had 90 Twitter wow. followers. Like That was the extent of my social media reach. And I was completely <laughs> anonymous. So... Um, like I couldn't, I couldn't harness my friends and family to give me a little leg up, you know, yeah. um, probably for the best if you're writing about your sex life. Um, and so, <laughs> you know, so this agent approached me and sort of said, I, you know, I really want to sign you, but you, but before we start to sell the book, you must build your social media following. And that broke the inside of my head about the whole thing forever, you know, yeah. because so I hear this oh, so often. God, the from panic, authors. you know, like, how do you do that? And I, it was particularly hard writing about sex as I was, because on one hand, I was not writing about sexy sex, like the, like the sex community were writing about. You know? <laughs> yeah. I was writing about how hard it is to keep intimacy going in a long-term relationship. It was really emotional and, you know, so on the one hand, I couldn't link with those people because they scared me. And like whenever I did, I'd, I'd get all sorts of stuff in my inbox that was like, oh, my God. You know? um, <laughs> and But on the other hand, like I couldn't do the random following of people that you might have done otherwise, because actually people quite often blocked me because I was writing about sex and they assumed right. that I was going to be one of those people. So I had Yeah. Or it just wasn't yeah, what they wanted to see. Which is totally I fine. And I wanted to behave really respectfully about that. And I knew that in the same situation, if I were not happening to write about this, I would be like that. So I was just really stuck. I was under pressure to build a following. Um and I couldn't. Like there was nothing I could do to do that. Yeah, because you, you can't mine your personal life if no. you want to maintain anonym yeah, anonymity. Yeah, that's right. So I like that. I, it became a very anxious relationship between like those numbers that I knew I was supposed to be growing, but at the same time, loads of people were reading the blog, and I was kind of like, well, what I can see from my you know analytics backstage is that people are sharing this by email, like women are passing it on to their friends. Yeah, and that's is that not enough like do you need that number on it anyway I think I had 200 followers when the book sold you know I mean it really <laughs> but it I mean that reflects I think sometimes how short-sighted the publishing industry can be and I understand for many reasons obviously like they're trying to make safe bets financially and a following seems like one but you're absolutely right a dedicated readership that goes and types your URL in and finds your blog and reads it there, that is so much more engaged than someone who hits follow on Twitter and then maybe doesn't see your tweet again for the next, like, six yes, months. That was invisible to them, you know. And, I, yeah, that I think that really, you know, so coming back to kind of today, I think I was still being really, really cautious and not wanting to think about numbers and analytics and 
how to build because mm. I just it just was a freaking out sort of moment in my life where I felt completely powerless and totally invisible and ashamed you know like why why were other people yeah. going viral and I wasn't sort of feeling and it yeah I think a lot of people still have those feelings I think you know and it can be hard to kind of see you look at some content and you think people think why is that better than mine what am I missing here mm-hmm. And sometimes you're missing nothing and it's just the opportunity in right place, right time. And sometimes it's really subtle because it sounds like you were going viral, yeah. just yeah. not in the visible way your publishers were looking It was for. kind of, it was a crazy, a crazy moment for me because it was also very scary. You know, I was like working in education at the time and so I had to be really careful with my anonymity, but I felt really passionately about the project and I knew from reader feedback that people were just so grateful to have someone having an honest conversation about sexuality that wasn't judgmental and that was about love and about tenderness and affection and all of those things that you know that we don't tend to get when we talk about sex you know it wasn't about positions or you know yeah yeah um and so yeah it was it was just a really tender moment and the book the book sold for quite a good deal and sold in loads of territories but then had a change of editor before it was published and just didn't, like, literally, the publisher just dropped all mention of it. And ironically, that was six months before Fifty Shades of Grey came out. And so six months later, (laughs) everybody wanted to read about sex. And my time had passed. And I was like, oh, my God, you know, and I, you know, I learned about the brutality of the publishing industry in that moment. It was horrible. Right. That's one of the near misses that you mentioned then at the beginning. What's that book called? Because there'll be people listening who want to read it. It's called The 52 Seductions, which is not named after Fifty Shades of Grey. It was about seducing each other once a week for a year. So what do you think it is about wintering? That, that made it the kind of golden goose? <laughs> is it the book? Is it the timing? Is it... <laughs> I don't know. I think, do you know what? I actually think that another thing that publishing has missed for a long time is how desperate we as readers are for people to talk to us about the ways in which we struggle, you know, that actually mm. we are so sick of hearing, like, here's how to make your life perfect in five years. Yes. I mean, nobody actually ever wanted that in the first place. And we've had it <laughs> pushed towards us. And also, like, this kind of survivorship bias that comes through publishing, which is like, here are all the shiny people who were shiny in the first place telling you how to be shiny. And, oh, whoops, you can't be shiny too. Why is that? You must have failed. Like that. Spend money and maybe yeah, you'll be money, better. But then you won't be and you'll hate yourself even harder for it. And actually, you know, like I just think, I think the world was really ready for a book that talked about how to cope when everything falls through. And the fact that the pandemic came you know, a a month after it came out in the UK meant that we had a, suddenly the normals were able to talk about that too. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't just us ones on the fringes. Talking about it. Like finally the normals were like, oh wow, this sucks, doesn't it? And it's like, yeah, here's a book about how much it sucks. (laughs) Yes. Um, I, it was so funny how it was recommended to me 
um, and I listened to the audio book before I'd put it back together in my head that it was you because I think I, I think I remember you talking about it and it was coming out when you were in the Insta retreat possibly or in the yeah, Facebook possibly, group yeah I think it yeah and yeah like it came to me another another way <laughs> and then I went to email you and I was like hold on. <laughs> it's, it's that Catherine May and I, I mean, I read it pre-pandemic, did I? Or yeah, the start of the pandemic? It all blurs. We could have had time to do that, definitely, yeah. And it felt to me like, as well, like a kind of quiet activism, mm-hmm, that book. It is a counter-narrative to the whole notion of constant productivity mm-hmm. and capitalism, really, <laughs> yeah. that that we've all been indoctrinated into. Do you want to explain your concept of wintering because I realize sure, I haven't actually yeah. explained what, what the book is about. Yeah so wintering's really a book about the times in life when you feel cut off from the rest of the world like whether that's mental or physical illness or a big life change you know a divorce or bereavement it's about the idea that that we end up in this very similar mental and, and even physical space through loads of different means, but we don't talk about that. And so we don't realise we have it in common. And I think it's incredibly normal. I think it's part of the natural life cycle. And if we look at nature, it it shows mm. us this model for how wintering, A, is, is completely okay, actually, but also like how we can endure it by like leaning into it and accepting it. Um, and finding beauty in it actually finding beauty in in those sad difficult moments rather than trying to power on through and pretending it's it's all okay so yeah that's that's kind of the the concept yeah and it's not tied to the actual seasons so you could be wintering (laughs) at any time of year and it really resonated with me a metaphor that I have always carried is how the blossom trees Mm -hmm. the cherry blossom trees flower and are spectacular for if you're lucky two weeks of the year and yet like if we could you know capitalism would have blossom trees that flowered 365 days yeah we would have found a way and we would have made it if it was possible and we buy plastic ones and things right because we prefer that but actually like in order for that to happen it has to have all the Mm. other seasons like they are all equally as important and yet we expect ourselves to be the fully flowering blossom tree every day of the year and that's just exhausting and you know what that discounts that that kind of vision of us being always out and always up is all sorts of really useful wonderful things like thinking and reflecting, you know, mm. the Celts call winter a gestational season. And I love that idea, the idea that you're kind of pregnant with promise in winter, but you're you're nurturing yourself, you're nurturing the next you in winter. And I, I think, you know, I, I don't mean to say ever that, oh, it's really good, actually, like see the bright side. It's actually feel the vileness of it, but know and trust that, the summer will come round again and what you're doing now is useful and and, and right for you, you know. Yeah, necessary. Mm, totally necessary and unavoidable. Like you didn't screw up for this to happen. This is coming to yes. all of us anyway. <laughs> yes. So, I mean, because it was a huge comfort to me. I was recommended it, like I said, probably pre-pandemic, but it, my winter has lasted yeah, quite some time. Tricky, yeah, <laughs> and as they 
as they often do for people. And I feel like as I kind of it's slowly thawing and uh, some bulbs are maybe popping their heads up right now. But there were moments, so many moments in that winter where I thought, this is just never mm. going to stop. This is all, I'm never going to get back to where I was. Like, it's so easy to oh, believe terror. it. And yeah. then moments now. The terror of that moment is just awful. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah. And it, that makes you worse and that makes you sink deeper into it. And then there are moments now where just like you say, like the regret, as if I had a choice, <laughs> as if I could have just like snapped yep. out of it. <laughs> But blaming myself, like, why wasn't I able to do this? And why wasn't I keeping mm. up with that? As if those were choices that were ever available to me. As if they were available to the blossom Absolutely. tree, right? Like, why didn't it flower in December? I, and, but then, you know, that's not your fault because so much in our culture points us towards only the good bits and actively mm. tells us to snap out of the bad bits. You know, like so much online culture. I mean, I love online culture, incidentally. I, I'm really sick of hearing people tell us it's making us unproductive and cutting us off like yes if you're neurodivergent like me which I know you are maybe not in quite the same way but <laughs> like the online world is a lifeline it, it facilitates my connection and communication but there is a, a sort of stream of toxic positivity that runs through it that not only only shows us in our most kind of perfect moments, but that also sometimes jollies us along in a really vile way, you know, like keep smiling, like everything you do is perfect, you know. Mm. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not okay. Some things are not okay. And we need to be able to be with that. That's that's fine. Not everything can be okay. Yeah, it's completely it's normal. Really normal. Oh, yeah. <laughs> No, and this is where I think it, it fits in so much with capitalism because that expectation that you will turn up mm. at 9 a.m. and you will be able to produce to the same level and capacity that you yeah. did yesterday and the day before yeah. and the day before when you're a living biological Absolutely. organism that is not the same every And day. also, I mean, I I think the thing, the, the, the real thing that capitalism does for us is it makes what we want abundant, but it it constantly limits access to what we actually need. So it offers us this endless array of things to buy, you know, and things to consume. But we struggle to access, you know, good mental health care. We struggle to find time to rest, you know. <laughs> that is the, yes. that's the lasting effect of the the system that we live in and we have to start to to see it for what it is and start to demand what we need first before we worry about all of these weird desires that it it sort of carefully fosters in us and I think lockdown and the pandemic has been a really interesting kind of sideways glance yeah. at that because especially in the first one when there was a bit more optimism <laughs> generally that? in the community <laughs> Yeah, when everyone was baking. Oh, Do you remember yeah, that one? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, everywhere sold out of gardening mm. supplies and, and bread baking uh, ingredients. And people were given time for the first time, mm. probably, in their adult life. And they didn't choose to be lazy, quote unquote lazy. <laughs> yeah. I'm fascinated by the entire concept of laziness. But, you know, they, they didn't choose what many right-wing politicians would have us believe which is to just lie on the sofa Watching all day and do telly. nothing yeah. they chose to be yeah in, I mean and, and no judgment if you did just lie on the sofa watching <laughs> telly response, by the way because we all had to cope yeah. 
Yeah. But like most people wanted to also have a level of industriousness and doing. And it was the things that we've all had to drop. Like the the amount of headlines about people going to beautiful nature spots and walking and how outrageous it was. And it oh was like, God, like why would we people can't normally do this. Right. Yeah. Like this is great news for humankind. So <laughs> I do, I think it's going to be an interesting year if this is the end of lockdown in the UK and if, if everyone's kind of emerging from it, which is still yeah. an if. But it'll be interesting to see what people are willing to accept again, just like pe- whether people are willing to accept working mm-hmm. in an office and all of the negatives that sometimes come with that, whether people are willing to accept like this expectation of always being yeah, on. on. And, I, you know, I think we're already seeing loads of people making changes and finding, you know, like noticing how horrible some aspects of old life were. Like there's loads of things we've all missed and maybe we've all missed different stuff, but I'm hearing so many people sort of say, I can't go back to that office now, or, you know, I can't go back to being so busy. Like they've, we've learned stuff about ourselves, And I mean, that's, that is exactly what wintering does. You know, if, if you're receptive to it, if you're willing to listen, if you're not stubbornly, you know, pushing yourself back into your old life, which I did time and time again, before I got my autism diagnosis, you know, by the way. So again, no judgment, you know, Um, but like, if you can tune into it, it always shows you an, a, a new way and it shows you what you don't want to go back to. And that is such valuable intelligence. Yeah. And, and actually, I think certainly in my experience, it's the fighting yep. of that acceptance yep. that prolongs the whole yeah. experience. And that makes it really painful, actually. Definitely. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah. Thinking about your autism diagnosis experience, it's reminding me of another podcast I've recorded just last week with um, a wonderful woman called Rebecca Schiller. Oh, I love you, Rebecca. You yeah, she lives just down yes. the road from me, actually. Funny. Oh. <laughs> well, her book Earthed, which is kind of like, it feels like it could be the sister to yours in the yeah. sense that that was her uncovering of her ADHD diagnosis. Mm. Um, and I like, I find, I haven't read that book, actually, of yours. I'm going to be picking it up on my Kindle, but... I'm curious to know, like, what what is the change in you since having that definition of yourself, mm, especially kind of relatively late in life? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's like a huge change, actually, because, I mean, what you have to know immediately is that autism isn't curable and it's not even really treatable, you know. And so when I first went to my GP and said... I think I'm autistic. He was like, okay, so you do know that that if we diagnose you, there's absolutely nothing that will happen. Yes. And actually, that's the beauty of it, in fact. You know, like I don't want to be cured of being autistic because that would be being cured of being me. And there's loads of fantastic things that come with my my sort of really deep autistic perception, you know, the way that I can focus in on things and and develop these profound fascinations and the ways that like my sensory environment is so attuned really but the change that it allowed me to make is to know that I wasn't missing some kind of thing that I should be doing to make myself better so I'd had this pattern all through my life of like major mental health events like depression anxiety Uh, And physical health as well, because I was getting so burned out. And I 
I was constantly trying to find the answer to myself, like what thing do I need to do that will cure me? So I had read every self-help book going. This is so familiar, yes. Like everything, you know. I tried every alternative therapy. I'd I, There was nothing I had not tried, you know. And what was it you were trying to cure? What was it you were noticing in yourself that you wanted? I mean, loads of things, actually. I mean, I wanted to never get as terribly depressed again as I had done. I wanted to cure my anxiety. I wanted to cure my sense of social dislocation and alienness in the world. Like I, I felt different to everybody mm-hmm. and I felt like I could solve that somehow. And I, like I, I'm a capable person. I'm an intelligent person, you know, and what, what we sort of say about autism now is that autistic people have a spiky profile like we're ultra good at some things and ridiculously bad at other things and they make no sense together so you know like I'm the person who you know the working class kid who got themselves to Cambridge but I can't book a doctor's appointment you know (laughs) yeah and it it makes no sense and it still it makes no logical sense to me now but knowing that I'm autistic means that I can now and, and thank god for the internet like incidentally, because I can connect with other people who are just like me, who have the same problems. And it's so comforting because I never saw a mirror of myself before then. And that means that my work becomes like how to meet my own needs rather than how to solve me. And yes. that is such a different mindset. And and it's, you know what, like everybody everybody could benefit from learning it. Right. Whether you have a label of neurodivergence mm. or not, you have the brain you have. <laughs> You're not really going to yeah. change it. Yeah. And, you know, and also you're often comparing yourself to people who are not telling you the full truth. I mean, I yes. actually, Rebecca is a great example. I met Rebecca a few years ago at a party and I thought, oh, she's like so ultra competent and <laughs> socially <laughs> like a dent. And uh, and then I read her book, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yes. and I was like, oh, okay. And it, it's so funny because you know we're all comparing ourselves against like a false picture of what people actually are, and that we're just endlessly deferring that moment of self acceptance. And I can say to you really comfortably now that there are some parts of life that I am absolutely rubbish at, <laughs> and I don't have to pretend that anymore. But it also makes it a lot easier for me to say there are some things that I'm really good at and you all could listen to me about that. I'm I'm an expert in falling through the cracks and I've I've got a route through, you know. <laughs> Gather around, children. <laughs> it is a skill set. It's a really, really valuable skill set. Yeah, it's it is the skill set that we need, actually. <laughs> I agree. Like, yeah, I definitely think and, and there's there's kind of some controversy sometimes around saying that like autism or ADHD is a superpower. Because obviously for some people it's the opposite of that in their life and it's a negative experience. Yeah, and I often think that's sort of said quite patronisingly. You know, it's it's quite kind of, it's that's often said by people from the outside. Like, I, I don't need to have a superpower. I just need to be a human being and that's what I am. Like, I'm, I'm on the human spectrum. Yeah, um, and own your power that you do have. Yeah, I, I, yeah there's, some, there's some things that I'm great at, but like, I, I, a lot of people say, oh, you know, I bet you, you know, I bet all these people should look at you now like you're a New York Times bestseller. It's like that is not what makes my humanity valuable. Like my no. existence is enough. Not every autistic person can do what I can do. 
and they are still of equal value as a person to me. And like, we just don't know how to say that anymore. I don't think we know how to appreciate that about ourselves anymore. And maybe that's one of the things that's missing when you're 20 for many people that comes later in life as you start to kind of peel the layers off the onion. It's uh, hearing you talk about it. There's just so many parallels with my experience because for me, it was almost a forgiveness. Like, yes, all these things I've hated about myself. Mm -hmm. And the way I would describe it is it's like how everyone else was born with a copy of the rule book, like a manual for how to live. And I didn't get mine. (laughs) No one gave me that. I think you're really like electricity of every living thing because I talk about that a lot. You know how... (laughs) You know, that sense that everyone else is tuned into these secret rules that are not yes. stated and which I've entirely missed. Um, but what's I think like the trans part of the transformation that happens for me is that I realised that I don't like those rules and I never liked mm. them. And that I was trying to follow these rules because I felt like I was a wonky neurotypical But being autistic means I can say, well, those rules suck, actually, don't they? Yes. I, I don't want them. Bye. <laughs> that's, that's, like, that's okay. It was. I was in a coaching session with um, a wonderful coach called Marlene, and I said that to her. I said, you know, everyone else got the rule book and I didn't. And she was like, "That sounds amazing. Lucky <laughs> you." She was like, "You don't have this stupid rule book that we all carry around and try and live our lives by." Like, she was like, "No wonder you're successful. You get to look at everything with questioning eyes." She was like, "Put that on your marketing material. That should be who you are." And true yeah it's, it's, that's I had part never of value seen that we have yes yeah but it, I th- and then it is true because it, everything when it comes down to like choosing where to send my daughter to school or choosing how to dress or what to eat I don't draw on the rules like my mother-in-law fascinates me because like if she orders fish for her starter she can't have fish for her main that's a rule oh, you're not allowed oh, to say wow thing. who wrote that one down Apparently that's a rule, and I was like, "Wow!" But why? Why? Can, and why do you, you can eat follow a fish it? Based dinner, it's fine. Like yeah. fish is great. <laughs> <laughs> you can't if she orders like beef. She can't have double beef. I don't know. People <laughs> listening, please beef. contact me if this is a rule you know of. Because, but and even though she can see it, there's no logic in it for her. It's a rule that she has to follow, and it is a gift to not be beheld, beholden to those. Yeah, I mean, like, I'm I'm totally ignorant of those rules. And why would you want them? Like, I mean, this is, you know, this is the more radical side of, of all of this, that, I mean, I really would like neurotypical people who are listening to think about why they think they're better than this. They're not, like, it's just different. And I, there's so much stuff that neurotypicals do to themselves that is putting them in pain, but they keep doing it anyway. <laughs> and people like you and I have the privilege of being able to say, Oh, well, not neurotypical. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to go to this party because I know I'm going to hate it. You know, I know that also everyone else in the room is going to hate it, but they're going to go anyway. (laughs) And pretend they had a great time. Yeah. Like networking events. Oh, my God. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. But then social media and networking online. Uh, that is much more my comfort zone. Yeah, exactly. Because it's, well, I mean, I, I was about to say because it's organic, because some of it is organic. I mean, I, you know, I do hate it when I, you you notice when your book does well, when uh, suddenly people that you've never really conversed with online are like, Catherine, we must have coffee. It's like, it's not organic. <laughs> Interest. That's so interesting, isn't it? Yeah. And, and actually, 
I don't know if you found this. I it's made me quite cautious because I took all of that at face value mm. and naively thought, oh, like they want to be friends. <laughs> and then you very quickly find out that's not really that's not really what it's about for them. Um, and that's been tricky. Yeah, I'm very I'm very cautious with people anyway. I mean, I think, you know, like we're we're having a fairly jokey conversation about this, but I think most neurodivergent people carry trauma you know the trauma mm. of continuous rejection and you know bullying and avert and covert kind of you know snark um and I and I am very very cautious around people and I like I'm I'm learning to be really open-hearted to people that are like me but I'm still very suspicious of people that are devoted to to normalness because yes those people have actually harmed me a lot of times in my life they've not meant to but they have um and I'm careful definitely yeah and and I think of it as it must be if you have devoted your life to following the rules of normal Mm -hmm. and then you meet someone who is living completely outside of them and completely free of those rules it's almost like it endangers their sense of self. Yeah. I mean, I'm talking about, you know, the people who can be really hurtful and really dismissive or cruel. Um, but of course, you don't know that when you're a child growing up. And there's a statistic that I always muddle, but it's a child with ADHD has heard something like 12,000 more negative things about themselves than a oh. neurotypical child by the age yeah. of 10. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. And so much stigma. Mm. yeah and and not knowing why if you've if you, even if you've got a diagnosis really but especially if you haven't yeah not really having a good explanation for why you're not meeting other people's standards mm. and a hallmark that I know ASD ASC I should say and autism <laughs> ASC and ADHD share <laughs> is this concept of rejection sensitive dysphoria I don't know if you've come across that mm, yeah 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 um, and I think it probably stems from that that starting really young being rejected yeah quite routinely and we're, being taught to reject yourself you know we are absolutely we we swim in the waters of rejection all the time and completely unexplained rejection because you're so often making more effort than everybody else in the room and yet still you're rejected oh that one hit me yes mm-hmm. <laughs> mm. and you've given it your all and you're like well if yeah. that's not good enough, where else do I go? What do Absolutely. I do next? There's actually this scene in Electricity that I wrote about during a careers lesson when I was at school and we had to fill in like, you know, our qualities, like what are we, you know, and I'd put like tries hard to please other people. And the teacher picked up the thing and said to the whole class, like, <laughs> no, you don't, you know, <gasps> you're the last person. That, and I, and I remember <sighs> the, that shocked me because as far as I was concerned, I was, trying so hard and I knew it never worked but I didn't think that people didn't realize that I wasn't trying that that didn't was even very see painful. the effort yeah yeah I remember at university I, I bought this book that was like how to talk to anyone because I was just so <laughs> awkward oh my god and the it, fact that people publish those books as well you know it was a really right it was a really bad book and it was all I'd also been really badly edited so there were just whole chunks like missing or repeated which bothered me a lot but also how weird to be like 1920 and everything in the book was really bad advice so I'd be like Hey, everyone, what would you have on your gravestone? Oh, my God. 
I mean, that's a conversation that is, starter from my book that is like totally neurodiverse conversation though as well we love that sort of question <laughs> right? I was like this sounds good yeah and no weirdly no one else in my halls of residence at university oh my god <laughs> oh it's just lovely that we can laugh about it though because it's so it is funny really you know I remember yeah. reading a book that was like you know how to make an impression or whatever and it said uh Wear a wear a notable accessory so people can remember you. For example, a purple hat. And it's like, that is the worst advice I've ever heard in my entire life. Like, did you say that out loud? Especially to someone who might have a tendency towards black and white thinking, because then yes. the purple hat becomes you yes. synonymously. You you can't go out without the purple hat. Oh my god. I mean, I you know, I was quite an extreme dresser when I was younger anyway, at the best of times. I I didn't need an extra purple hat. I'm also six <laughs> foot tall. I'm quite memorable. <laughs> I'm gonna send you a purple hat. <laughs> I think though, um, like looping back round to where this conversation started as well, it it also isn't surprising that sometimes we're tentative about showing more of ourselves online when our experience of the whole world has been generally fairly hit and miss in terms of acceptance and and we're actually quite often when you've shown yourself you've met kind of disgust or shock Mm. and yeah, yeah absolutely and for me I think what was so empowering about first Instagram and then my blog and then kind of everything that came from it was I got to be seen for myself Mm. and and appreciated and it wasn't a problem for the first time ever like the things that made me different were almost an asset in the online world definitely instead of a negative and I don't know if that mirrors your experience to a degree oh absolutely I mean I yeah from right from writing 52 seductions and and talking about sex in the way that I need to talk about sex and finding loads of people who were grateful that I was doing it. Um, but then actually, you know, I first came out as autistic online and found immediately a, a big group of people on Twitter who were the same as me. And yeah. it's so affirming. I mean, incidentally, I lost a quarter of my followers on Twitter when I, wow. when I said I was autistic, most of them men, you know, and some of them who were angry with me for daring to say it. Um, but you know, there's a really good example for anyone who worries about losing followers. Like you lose the right followers, like you lose the followers you need to lose. (laughs) Right. This is panning for gold. You want to shake out the dirt. Get rid of those people. Like if they cannot accept you as you, you like, you don't want them anywhere near you block them. Um, (laughs) but you know, found, I mean, found my people. I mean, it's the best club in town. Like these people who I I can trust to be me with for the first time in my life. What would you say? I have a strong suspicion there'll be people listening to this nodding along <laughs> and s- simultaneously Googling autism or ADHD <laughs> on their phone because they're suddenly realising they maybe relate to your experience. What would you recommend for someone who's just starting to think there might be something going on there for them? Well, I mean, I think, do you know what? The biggest thing I think now, which maybe I didn't think at the time, is that your identification as as being autistic or having ADHD or, or whatever it is, is yours. And it doesn't need the approval of a doctor or, a, you know, or your mum, 
you know like people often have a big trouble with their sure. parents yeah. when they you know talk about it like it is yours to own like if you thought you were gay you would not ask a straight person to confirm that to you you would trust your feelings about that because they are the best and only guide you'd have you wouldn't take like a gay assessment and yeah, see what you score wouldn't. you got like uh, i'm i'm going to do 15 gay quizzes on the internet <laughs> you know like <laughs> i don't mean to be flippant about that but and i you know i know that coming out has been a massive struggle for people across history but mm. but actually one of the things that we that we don't need from someone when they tell us they're gay is a letter from their doctor to confirm that they are gay so um, true and your neurodivergence is yours like whether or not you choose to then seek a formal assessment is up to you and there's loads of reasons to do that and there's loads of reasons not to do that too but it has to belong to you so you you do your neurodivergent thing of researching it to the end of the earth because that is exactly what we do we hyper focus <laughs> on the stuff that we care about my therapist said to me this week she was like i notice you research things a lot yeah, right. it's like yes yeah <laughs> that's good isn't it <laughs> you know like that's what we're primed to do and pretty quickly when you come across other people like and and certainly seek out first-hand accounts like do not go for the accounts of people who are judging us from the outside and Mm. anytime you stumble across negative language that's a really good sign that you are not on the right website like find first-hand accounts of people talking about themselves and if you recognize yourself then that is all you need to know. Like this is the this is the beginning of a massive process of learning to trust your gut instinct rather than the instincts of other people who don't understand you. Ah, oh, that is such good advice and such powerful advice. I think <laughs> I wish I'd had it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You've blown my mind a little bit because I forgot we were allowed to do that. Like yeah. the system is the system. And and I think as well, so many people have seen I don't know if you've ever come across it, but there's a lot of accusations online of like attention seeking and illness making and uh, possibly also some of that's valid when it comes to teenagers on TikTok right now. But (laughs) like my thought on that is always, well, first of all, people who would well wouldn't fake anything online for attention anyway. So clearly they are ill, whether or not it's the illness that they think they have. Um, But secondly, like, yeah, we are talking now as adults that people at a later stage in our life and you know if you're faking or not I've had this with my dysautonomia like I would be so tired I couldn't get off the bed so dizzy Mm -hmm. and still be like maybe I'm just lazy maybe I'm just making excuses like my body wouldn't move yeah we're so carefully trained to ignore that because it's inconvenient you know and actually when you start taking care of yourself the first thing you do is you listen to your instincts and you I mean there's a line in wintering that's like I assumed my needs were reasonable like if you assume your needs are reasonable everything changes from there I might need to put on a post-it my needs. Assume your needs are reasonable, Sarah, I think. Yeah, yeah. I think I mean, maybe we could all practice that. It's it's tiny, uh, but it's it's like completely vital. And it's the only it's the only way to survive, you know, actually. You cannot you cannot live a good life if you are constantly suppressing what you need. Yes. And it seems to me there are so many women who get to kind of this age in life. And the plates have been spinning and spinning and spinning for so long. And all of a sudden we just can't add another plate and we can't keep it going anymore. And that's when 
the breakdown hits or the wintering hits or the diagnosis comes. Or yeah, absolutely. absolutely. It's fascinating how many of these conversations are kind of coming to my sphere right now. I think it's, <laughs> life is a All funny way of doing it. <laughs> Catherine, where can people find more of your work? Where can they start? Um, I am all over the place. I'm on Twitter as like, it's, I've got the ugliest Twitter handle to say out loud, but it works <laughs> on the page. It's like underscore Catherine underscore May underscore make sense written down. Yeah. Someone I've got the got, underscores in mine. Oh, have you? <laughs> Someone has got at Catherine May and they've never once tweeted and I hate <gasps> them. Like, just like, <laughs> How dare they? I want that handle. Anyway, um, I am Catherine May underscore on Instagram and my website is Catherine-May.com. Amazing. And I will link to all of your books that we've talked about as well and the ones we haven't yet talked about <laughs> and your online uh classes and support for writers as well fantastic thank, thank you. you so much show notes for this episode are at meandorla.co.uk forward slash podcast 101 and you can also check out how beautiful my website is while you're there and maybe have a look at the insta retreat class if that sounds like it's something that could be a good fit for you i have a whole bank of incredible inspiring people and their stories to share with you in the upcoming episodes. So make sure you hit subscribe if you haven't already so you don't miss any more episodes. I'm going to go and turn my fridge back on and I hope you have an awesome week. Lots of love.